Hey guys, uh, this video is going to be a response video discussing the uh, false accusations, the um, wrong facts, and the uh, really emptiness of progressive Christianity. So this video will be timestamped like all my videos. It's also available on podcasts if you'd rather just be listening to it while you're working, uh, but also on my YouTube channel. Also, I just wanted to say that... Um, you know, if you'd like to skip ahead or if you have a specific question about some of these topical things, you'll be able to find that in the timestamps. And at the end, I'll, I'll give a little bit of uh, my thoughts uh, in closing. But mainly, this will just be in response. Uh, this is something that I saw about a week ago. This was published uh, early February. And after I've watched it, it really caused my blood to boil, not only because I disagree with him and his opinions, but mainly because I disagree with the... Um, the so-called facts that he brings forward that are factually wrong. And I just wanted to point that out for those um, who are not from a progressive bent, but more from a conservative bent, uh, theologically speaking, not politically speaking. Um, and I want you to see that uh, most of the things he's saying are not uh, based in truth, but rather they're, they're false completely. And I'm going to, that's what this video is for, to show you these things. I'll point you to, to passages themselves to show you um, that most of the things that he's claiming about what the Bible teaches, he's completely wrong on. So if you want to be a progressive Christian, that's one thing. You're free to do that. But if you want to falsely speak against the uh, message of the Bible, that's something we can all pick up a Bible and look at and see if you're right or wrong. So that's what the purpose of this video is for. I hope this is helpful to you. Um, please uh, leave me something in the comment section down below. Leave me a question to ask Grant Mooney at gmail.com. If you're curious as to uh, my thoughts on a particular issue, or if you have something particular about this video you disagreed with with me, or you disagreed with here, I'd love to hear your thoughts and response to this. So a month from next week, um, I'm going to be responding to your questions. So it could be questions about something I said in a sermon or something I didn't say in a sermon. It could be questions about something um, that, that hasn't even been touched in any of the sermons. So feel free to, to reach out. Uh, you can email me at josh at gracepoint.net. Gracepoint has an E on the end. Send your questions, uh, your curiosities, and all those sorts of things. I'm looking forward to seeing what's on your mind. I'm looking forward to responding to those uh, on March 14th. But today, I want to continue our series by exploring the relationship of the Bible to progressive Christianity. Um, I think we should acknowledge that, that for many progressive Christians, we often have an awkward, even tense relationship with the Bible. We no longer see it as a divinely dictated book that fell out of the sky. Um, that's one of the first things we'll see here. Um, he says that progressive Christians have an awkward or tense relationship with the Bible. Again, um, this would be something descriptive of an atheist or an agnostic, uh, but someone to call themselves a Christian while also saying they have a, an awkward or tense relationship with the Bible um, it seems kind of strange as the definition of a Christian is a little Christ, a Christ follower. So to say that you follow someone while at the same time you're extremely troubled inwardly uh, concerning um, holding opposing views to that by nature and by definition uh, is uh, the reality is that you should be labeled something other than a Christian. Um, so that's something I'll go on to talk about in this video. I think progressive Christianity is not only wrong, but I think they're mislabeled 
um, to the, the greatest degree. That's my greatest uh, qualm against that is that they're mislabeling themselves as Christians, and I would not consider them Christians in any sense of the word. Um, and the other thing he says here is that they no longer see the Bible as a book that um, was divinely dictated, which is something that uh, Christians don't hold. Uh, there's a couple of views of inspiration, which I might as well delve into. Um, let me just read these. Um, there's a view called natural inspiration, uh, which will be described as men who maybe have creative genius, that they wrote the Bible, but it's still a solely human work and no more likely to be true than any other human work. That's natural inspiration. I'll give you a couple of views. Another view is that of a mystical inspiration, which is that the biblical authors were inspired in the sense that uh, people today are inspired to do great things like painting or poetry, but such inspiration does not guarantee that the Bible is God's word. Um, another view of inspiration, and I wouldn't hold to any of these, would be something called conceptual inspiration, the idea that God gave the biblical authors the ideas, and they developed those ideas, but they were not protected from introducing errors into their works. Fourthly, there's another view, which he may hold this view. Uh, I'd encourage you to, to look for this uh, in his teaching. It seems like he, he bounces back and forth between multiple views, so I can't really tell you what he holds, uh, but he seems to hold uh, this one as well. Uh, partial inspiration, which is the idea that some parts of the Bible are more inspired than other parts, and some parts are not inspired at all. This view allows for some portions of the Bible to be inspired and infallible, and for other portions to be uninspired, but it doesn't give any way to determine which is which. If this view were true, it would cast doubt on the validity of the entire Bible. Such a view appeals to those who want to develop their own brand of religion by selectively eliminating anything they don't like. This is ultimately where I would put these guys. Lastly, um, dictation inspiration is the idea that God dictated every word and the human writers were merely uh, transcriptionalists. While this view sounds good on the surface since it doesn't allow for errors in the original autographs, it is an overly simplistic view because it is evident that each human author used his own vocabulary and life experiences in the writing of the scripture. And that would not be what we would expect to see if the material were dictated. Uh, the view I tend to land on that most conservative evangelical scholars land on is something called verbal plenary inspiration. Um, this word plenary, we get it from a passage in 2 Timothy where it says that it's, it's God-breathed, uh, which we'll look at later in this study. So the other thing I would note... Um, Maybe there are certain parts that are dictated, like the Ten Commandments that God literally wrote with his finger, which I believe. Um, but maybe there are other parts as well that, that uh, are also verbal plenary inspiration in the sense that um, there's also the human aspect to the writing, but still nevertheless authoritative and inspired by God, but also not divorced from the human being. So if you've ever seen that crazy movie, The Knowing with Nicolas Cage, where aliens come to Earth, um, there's this they're recording numbers and something kind of possesses them and they're to the point where they're scratching it into uh, the back of a door um, and these numbers and then they like wake up. That's not at all what conservative Christians believe is the uh, view of inspiration behind the Bible. Um, like I said, maybe with the exception of the Ten Commandments and maybe in places where God speaks through more explicitly to prophets, but nevertheless, the entirety of the Bible is inspired. So we'll go on to talk about this a little more 
um, what the further along in the video. We'll have more on that in a little bit. Um, and we can actually, as we read it, we can see that there are some texts that are really just problematic. Texts that, in which God is depicted as, as orchestrating multiple genocides. Right? The Bible has been weaponized in dehumanizing ways and used to support slavery, segregation, misogyny, homophobia, and to trivialize the danger of climate change that it poses to our shared existence. Um, actually, on social media a couple weeks ago, I ran across this picture we're going to put up, and it was shared by a friend of mine. Thankfully, this friend was sharing it as like, I can't believe this exists, but it was this picture of the, the Bible. You can tell it's a Bible, but it's in the shape of a gun that's being shot. And it, it talks about the Bible as a weapon. Now, some of that language is drawn from interpretations of the Bible, right? Um, uh, it talks about the sword of, uh, you know, the sword of the Spirit or something like that. that people... So one of the things you're going to see here is that um, what he calls interpretation of Scripture, I would call a plain uh, reading of Scripture at times. Uh, there is a passage in Ephesians 6 that says, and 17 and 18, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, uh, with every prayer and petition. Pray at all times in the Spirit, and to this end, be alert with all perseverance and requests for all the saints. So the Bible is described by the Bible itself um, as a weapon, but not in a, a an abusive or evil sense of a weapon, but rather in a, a weapon of good fighting evil. And so... Um, Again, in other places, Paul also says that, you know, the weapons of our warfare are, are spiritual. They're not, we don't fight like the rest of the world fights, but we fight a spiritual battle. So um, it's, it's really a, a lot of, another one of these straw mans you're going to see in this video. He, he puts up a straw man, knocks it down, puts up a straw man, knocks it down. Um, so conservative Christians wouldn't view the Bible uh, for the most part in the way he would. Um, on this YouTube video, we got a picture of a Bible that looks like a Glock, uh, which is kind of funny. But, uh, you know, the Bible is a weapon, but not in the sense of for evil or abuse. Uh, I'm going to try not to get into that. Uh, just because a weapon exists doesn't necessarily make the weapon an evil thing. Unless you live in 21st century America. People assume the Bible is now this weapon to be wielded against those who disagree. The, the reality is the Bible plays, with all of that being true, that the Bible has been used in lots of lots of terrible ways. The Bible also plays and has played a really crucial role in the formation of what we call the Christian tradition. So knowing that that's the case, that, that where we are today has come, has come through generations of people who have been reading and interpreting and responding to the Bible, what do we do with the Bible as progressive Christians? Now, I think it's important for me to give a disclaimer before, and I give a disclaimer like this every time I talk about the Bible. I am not suggesting that you should read the Bible every day or that you have to engage in the Bible to be a, read the Bible to be a good Christian. Again, um, I don't read my Bible every single day. I think it's a good habit. Maybe there's some days where I may spend hours upon hours in the scriptures, and there may be days uh, where I don't open the Bible, but I still may be thinking on it. So again, I, I wouldn't, um, you know, I would agree with him there that, you know, uh, a faithful Christian doesn't have to spend every waking hour reading uh, the Bible. But at the same time, to go as far as to say you have to read the Bible uh, or that you don't have to read the Bible to be a faithful Christian. Um, again, the Bible is essential to Christianity. There's no way around that. And so this idea of stripping the Bible from Christianity is 
um, stripping the foundations of a house and, and trying to keep the house. Um, it's just a foolish, foolish concept. And it's, it's untenable. And not only that, but it's illogical. Um, and so the scriptures are one of the things that bind us um, of a faith and a truth and a record, a historical record of uh, what we believe and what is true. And so to rip that out, but to still claim kumbaya unity um, is just nonsensical in my opinion. For lots and lots of people, the Bible dredges up all sorts of pain, opens up wounds, and maybe right now just... And again, before I forget, um, I think the biggest problem I have, again, uh, is that it's okay to believe whatever you want as an American, but to relabel Christianity, um, this is just something that can't be done. Christianity has existed for 2,000 years and so what we're going to see in this video is he's trying to relabel everything, relabel faith, relabel inspiration, relay, um, excuse me, um, to relabel um, orthodoxy, to relabel so many things. And so we have to call things what they are. Um, and progressive Christianity isn't Christianity in, in any stretch of the imagination isn't the time to engage the Bible in that way. But I always want to say this. If you have grief around the loss of the Bible, like it was a part of your life and then your faith shifted and, and decomposed and something new began growing out of it. And now you have this, this ache because the Bible was once familiar and meaningful and now you don't know what to do with it. If that's you, if you have grief around that, um, if you really wish you could somehow engage the Bible in a way that is intellectually honest and is good for your heart and your soul, then I hope what I offer today is a perspective that might give you a glimmer of hope. Um, because I think there are ways to approach the Bible that do just that. Um, I want to begin with this observation from Marcus Borg, the late Marcus Borg, um, who has had such an influence on my own theological. Again, if you don't know who Marcus Borg is, um, he was, uh, this is from the wiki page, an American New Testament scholar and theologian among the most widely known and influential voices in progressive Christianity. As a fellow of the Jesus Seminar, which has been a seedbed for um, progressive Christianity, Borg was a major figure in historical Jesus scholarship. And there's not much historical about this pursuit, but anyways, it's really a rejection of, of uh, the historical Jesus. He retired as Hundir Distinguished Professor of Religion and Culture at Oregon State University in 2007. He died eight years later at the age of 72. This was, again, back in 2015. Um, so one of the fathers, uh, some claim, of the, uh, the progressive Christianity movement. Logical development, you know, spiritual development. He wrote this, Conflict about how to see and read the Bible is the single greatest issue dividing Christians. Conflict about how to see and read the Bible is the single greatest issue dividing Christians. And in my experience, I think he's exactly right. I mean, if we just think about the 30 plus thousand different Christian denominations that exist in the world. My hunch is that it's a pretty safe bet that most, many, if not most, exist because of disagreements about what the Bible is and how it should be interpreted. Right? Understandings and interpretations of the Bible have launched genocides, and they've also spurred selfless humanitarian efforts. It's been used to defend slavery, and it's also been, it also has inspired the work of abolitionists. It's propped up patriarchy and led others to embrace egalitarianism. The list goes on and on and on. The truth is, we can probably find a verse in the Bible to justify just about anything and everything, and that has been all too uh, tragically evident 
apparent throughout history. And it doesn't have to be anything. You can just go to social media. And... One of the things that's uh, continually brought as an accusation is that, you know, the Bible really can support any kind of ideology. And that's just not the truth. The Bible ultimately, uh, when we put these Old Testament and New Testament um, collections together, it really produces uh, one ideology of Orthodox Christian faith. And while there may be things that certain Christians disagree upon that are all trying to be faithful to the text, um, that's an in-house thing. Um, what we're seeing here is really outside house things, uh, things that are out of house debates and um, things like the Trinity, the deity of Christ, things like the inspiration and authority of the scriptures. These are all in um, within Christianity. Um, but once you take a view outside of this, you're really stepping outside of historical Orthodox Christian faith. And so these are questions we ought to explore. These are uh, things we ought to research and study. But ultimately, if people land outside of that camp, it's outside of, of Christian um, Orthodoxy. Um, so again, what we're going to see is, and I'm going to point you to Second Peter in just a minute, um, this continual accusation that the Bible can be interpreted in countless ways, and the Bible can lead us in all kinds of directions. This is really a result of postmodernism and this idea of subjective truth and, and this idea that there's no such thing as objective truth. And so as postmodernism has brought bearing on every religion, Christianity is not free from the um, disfiguration as well, as we're going to see that um, it leads to people having an idea that uh, all truths are equally valid, uh, even within uh, Christian faith, and all truths are equally orthodox. And that's just not the case. It, uh, it is not in any way. You'll see that many of the religious arguments that break out on social media, and even the political arguments that break out on social media, ultimately come down to different ways of reading, understanding, interpreting the Bible. Now, before we go any further, I have to confess something. And if you know me at all, this is not going to be a shock to you. But I'm going to say it out loud anyway. Here goes. I love the Bible. This is funny. This is almost comedic relief. You know, um, he's padding his statement to, to build up a case and then to say that he, he loves the Bible, allegedly. Um, it's just sad. Again, I'm most against not people freely practicing their beliefs so long as it doesn't infringe upon the rights of others. I'm most concerned with the relabeling of Christianity and the mislabeling of progressive Christianity as Christianity at all. I really love it. I love it so much. It has shaped my imagination since I was old enough to have one. So when I, what I'm going to do today, some people may interpret what I'm going to share today as being like I'm somehow anti the Bible. I'm not anti the Bible. I love the Bible. And when I offer context to the Bible or when I offer a critique of something in the Bible, of a, a passage or story, or when I seek to reimagine, reframe, and reinterpret a text, I do not do so as an enemy. I do so as someone who loves and values the Bible deeply. I, I, I don't always take it literally, but I always take it seriously. And I think that... Um, so I, I come not as an enemy of the text. I come as a friend, as someone who loves the Bible, but, but also as someone who recognizes the way the Bible, I think, has been misused and weaponized and misinterpreted uh, in ways that have really not opened wide the gates of inclusion and embrace, but have shut down those gates for some. For Jesus, he would teach that there's a, a narrow path that leads to him and there's a broad path that leads away from him. 
And so as a Christian teacher, I will tell you that's the truth. Um, As this man would tell you, there's a wide road that leads to Jesus. And that's not what Jesus taught at all. Only people. Uh, I I don't think it has to be that way. I I do firmly, fully acknowledge that the Bible has issues. Most of those issues are grounded, I think, in our expectations. The expectations that we bring to the Bible that the Bible isn't intended to bear or even capable of bearing. I think we do that. I think that we come to the Bible with a set of expectations of what it is and what it can do and a set of expectations about what our relationship to it actually looks like. And the Bible just wasn't ever intended or capable of holding up those expectations. And I think part of it has been that like, we want to give authority to a text, right? We don't say the Bible has authority, but if we give all the authority to a text, it almost makes us feel like it absolves us of our responsibility to continue the work our ancestors who created these stories and poems were doing, which is continuing in a journey with God, continuing wondering. Again, the faithful Christian, the, the writer of the Old Testament, the writer of the New Testament, what they were trying to do is to change their views about God. And, and you as a faithful Christian, as he would say, would do the same, to, to change the Bible, change um, what is orthodoxy, what is truth. And uh, that's just not at all what, what's the case in any way. What does it mean to be human in relationship to the divine? What does it mean to be human in relationship to other humans? What is our place in the world? What does it look like to be a good human being? Right? If we say, well, the Bible has all the authority and we just interpret, we don't interpret it. We just, we just see what the Bible says and we do it. Then we're really shirking our responsibility. We're, we're... So faithfully following the Bible as is, as it teaches us, is a complete missing of what Christianity is supposed to be according to him. Right? So catch this. Right? We don't have to follow it. We have to reinterpret it. Saying that we actually don't want to do the work that's been handed to us by our spiritual ancestors. And I think this can be seen in the, hey, hey, don't blame me. I'm just telling you what the Bible says approach. You ever heard that where somebody says something ridiculously offensive and they're like, hey, 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 you can't get mad at me. You got to get mad at God because God wrote the Bible and the Bible says it. Right? Like that's sort of, I remember a magnet hanging on our refrigerator growing up that said, uh, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And I, you know, that was part of that early memory for me. But I don't think that's how it works. Engaging the Bible should actually inspire us to continue following the long moral arc of the universe that bends toward justice. Because at the close of the Bible, we hadn't gotten there. Right? We have seen so many injustices that have been uh, propagated and perpetuated in human history since the Bible was written. And at times, the Bible, as we've said, has has been used to prop up and support systems, and still today is used to support and prop up systems of injustice and inequity. So there's still work to be done. The moral arc of the universe is long and bends towards justice, but we can't stand back as if it was still the year 2 or 27 or 30 or 100 and hope that it's going to get there. It takes our effort. It takes our participation to get it there. And I think there are several misconceptions about the Bible that are just embedded deeply into our assumptions about what the Bible is and how it's best to be interpreted. So before we talk about and maybe try to reframe what the Bible is, before we make some affirmations, I want to start with some misconceptions. And one we've already referenced, and it's a pretty widely repeated one. It's this phrase, the Bible says. Here's the thing. The Bible doesn't say anything. It just doesn't. The Bible doesn't say. The Bible reads. You and I are human beings. We have a worldview. We have 
biases that we're often not even aware of uh, that determine how we read the text, how we interpret the text, how we live our lives, who we, who we like, who we dislike, who we trust, all of that stuff. We have this, it's like we're wearing, like I'm wearing contact lenses right now that I'm not aware of because they're working properly. And so we all come with a worldview. There just isn't a place we can ever reach where we're so objective and so like step back from the personal when it comes to dealing with the text. There is no place where we can step back and objectively interpret what the Bible says. And I, I live with this. I'm trying to live with this awareness that. I... All right. I think we'll stop it there. Um, give you a few thoughts and commentary. Um, he goes on to say the Bible isn't self-interpreting. He says we have to interpret it. And he also says that the Bible doesn't say anything at all. If you caught that earlier, uh, if you've been listening closely. So essentially what he's saying is there is no objective truth, probably in reality, but there's most definitely no objective truth we can find in the Bible. And his claim for this stems from his idea that uh, the Bible is interpreted by human beings. And that's true, but that every interpretation uh, solely comes from human beings and that Every, uh, every part of it that was written down was from human beings. And so therefore, um, you know, there's no part of it that we can say the Bible says this because ultimately, based upon the human authorship and based upon the human interpretation, um, all of this together leads to uh, subjectivity and we cannot have objectivity. So I just wanted to read to you Second uh, Peter um, chapter 1 verse 16 and, and following. I think this is a really essential verse for this debate. And, and I think if we can understand this text, um, it will help us to understand this conversation and the very different claims that are being made. And so again, um, what I'm trying to do with this video is to refute biblically what he's claiming the Bible teaches, because they're all factually wrong. And I can point to you right here and say what the Bible factually teaches. It says in uh, verse 15, I'll start from in chapter one of second Peter. Indeed, I will also make every effort that after my departure, you'll have a testimony of these things. Uh, he's going to go on to uh, claim that, you know, second Peter was written in 150 uh, BC and the text itself for many reasons. And, and I'm not going to get into detail, but uh, the text itself claims otherwise. Um, and also, uh, there's many things that we can look at concerning the church fathers that would speak to a much earlier date. Um, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. Verse 16, Peter says, for we did not follow cleverly concocted fables when we made known to you the power and return of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, we were eyewitnesses of his grandeur. Peter's recalling the transfiguration experience in which um, Peter, James, and John were invited up by our Lord uh, Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, to the top of the mountain to witness his transfiguration, uh, along with Moses and Elijah, who descended down with him for a time being in what they saw through a vision. And so Peter, uh, James, and John all heard God come and speak to them audibly through a cloud. I've spoken on this in the Gospel of Mark. You can check that out on video or podcast, um, detailing that chapter of the scriptures. But Peter is recalling this and he's saying we're, we're not making this stuff up. We, we saw with our own eyes the majesty of Jesus and we heard from our own ears the audible voice of God confirming him as the son. He goes on to say in verse 17, for he received honor and glory from God the father 
When that voice, that's what he's speaking of, the audible voice of God, was conveyed to him by the majestic glory or through a cloud. This is my dear son in whom I am delighted. Now, this was in confirmation to uh, Psalm 2, which was a messianic uh, prophecy, uh, which was proclaimed twice over Jesus, once in private, the second time in public. Verse 18 says, When this voice was conveyed from heaven, we ourselves heard it, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Moreover, we possess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing. Okay, so see the stark contrast. What this man is claiming, I believe his name is Josh, is that the Bible is an altogether unreliable thing. The scriptures themselves claim a different truth, that they're an altogether reliable thing. Peter goes on to say, you do well if you pay attention to this as you would to a light shining in a murky place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And then he says this, these, these uh, two verses are so essential for this conversation. And again, this is where I would say is probably the biggest false accusation that this man is levying up against the Christian faith and up against the Bible, which is just factually false, which says here, verse 20 of chapter one, second Peter, above all, you do well if you recognize this, no prophecy of scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever born of human impulse. Rather, men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It's so essential, you know, Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, this speaks indefinitely to these claims, and it speaks in utter contradiction to what he's saying. So again, he can believe whatever he wants to believe. But what I'm doing this for is because he's saying the scripture doesn't claim that. It claims the opposite. And I'm telling you, no, look at the scriptures for yourself. Don't trust some pastor telling you some junk. Read your own Bible and figure out what it means. I, specifically me, a white, straight, cisgender, male Christian in America, that I bring all sorts of stuff with me to the text that I'm not aware of. All sorts of assumptions, because the Bible, for example, wasn't written by somebody who was living uh, and doing well in the most powerful empire the world had ever known. It was written by people who were being oppressed and mistreated by, the, at that time, the largest empire the world had ever known. And so when I come to the Bible, I have a lot of work to do on the front end to begin to even become remotely aware of what might actually be happening in a text. I say all that to say the Bible is not self-interpreting. We have to interpret it. The minute you read a text and say, here's what it means, you are engaging in the act and hopefully the art of biblical interpretation. So again, we would differ. Uh, he would say biblical interpretation is an art uh, to go with a paintbrush and close your eyes and draw freely. And I would tell you it's more of a science. Um, but uh, concerning what he said uh, earlier, to quote him, he says, uh, the Bible isn't self-interpreting. We have to interpret it. That's his point here on the screen. Um, that's not what Peter tells us. Peter tells us the Bible is self-interpreting, and it's dictated by the Holy Spirit ultimately and given to us through the Holy Spirit. And then as we read, as uh, spirit-indwelled Christians, the Holy Spirit aids us to rightly interpret the Scriptures um, with a right hermeneutic. Um, so again, see the opposite claims. And uh, he's claiming something 
contrary to the scripture. And that would be fine if he told you that. But what he's telling you is that the Bible supports what he's saying. And uh, anyone who can use their brain would see um, this is factually false. And so, so we, we just need to be aware that this claim saying, well, I'm just saying what the Bible says is actually a way of trying to limit and shut down honest questions and engagement with the Bible. Again, um, I, I just want to say this in my almost a decade now of ministry since the Lord called me uh, to teach the Bible. I've never once in my entire ministry, uh, to my knowledge, even a single time have ever uh, shut down or silenced or uh, sidelined a single question. Um, so it seems like, and we'll, we'll get this out of his message here, it seems like he was um, brought up in a very restrictive, a very uh, closed-minded, a very um, empty, um, kind of bullied, blind faith type of Christianity. And so he's rejecting that, and I as well would reject that wholeheartedly. When somebody says that, well, the Bible, I'm just telling you what the Bible says, they're ultimately trying to shut down questions and curiosity. And I think they're probably doing that because maybe they're afraid that if they think about it too long, they're going to have some questions and curiosities that pop up for them as well. So the Bible doesn't say the Bible reads. We make it say. Uh, another misconception. The Bible just isn't a science book. It just isn't a science book. One of the central debates people have had forever about the Bible focuses on the first few chapters of Genesis. Um, was the world really created in six days, making it 6,000 or so years old? There's a big boat in Kentucky that wants to tell you that's the truth. Do we have to reject scientific discoveries that point to a much older Earth, to the, the evolution of human beings from other hominin species of millions of years ago? The truth is the Bible just is not a reliable source for scientific understanding about how we got here and how the natural world works. For example, we're going to put up a picture I'm not going to go too far down. This is a long rabbit trail. Uh, Lord willing, I'll be able to teach through Genesis and, and deal with a lot of these concepts and ideologies. But one of the claims is that the Bible isn't a science book. And, and I just want to say the Bible itself tells us that it is written to give us understanding for salvation. It is written to give us um, a knowledge of the Holy Spirit's working in our hearts and lives so that we can faithfully walk with God. So in one sense, he's correct. I mean, it's not written to be a science textbook. It's written to be a salvation textbook. It's written to be a who God is textbook. Um, so it's a different kind of uh, purpose behind the Bible. So I think he's right in that. But also, as we're going to go on to see, I just wanted to mention, uh, there's certain places where the Bible is descriptive and not prescriptive. Um, or in other words, it's merely recording something historical and not affirming something historical. And so just because it's recorded doesn't mean that God wants us to do it. Um, matter of fact, a lot of times it's the opposite. But the Bible doesn't turn a blind eye to some of the evil that takes place in our world. The other thing I wanted to say um, outside of what's descriptive versus prescriptive is that at times the Bible is uh, anthropomorphic or in other words, um, coming from man's perspective. And so things like he's going to bring up, say, concerning the prayer of Joshua that the sun would stand still. From Joshua's point of view, and in his worldview, yes, he prayed the sun would stand still, and the sun did stand still. This doesn't mean that this is a claim on, you know, the earth being the center of the universe. Um, I don't think that's what the Bible's trying to do. And while people may have inferred it from that, 
um, it's still, again, it's from man's point of view. And so I don't think we have a real problem here necessarily, um, but, but some would think that. So I'll go on and let him speak some more. If you were to create an image based on Genesis chapter one and the creation story in Genesis chapter one, this is what it would look like. You would have the earth on pillars. You would have sort of the, the sky and you'd have heaven above it. The sky has doors or windows through which the rain comes. There's this place called Shale, which is not like an afterlife. It's just the abode of the dead. So they're not active or doing anything. This is when you die, you go to Shale. Um, and, and so it's, it's a very sort of uh, ancient cosmology. It's a cosmology we don't embrace today because we've been up there and we have pictures of what earth looks like and it's not sitting on pillars. There are no windows in the sky. And so, that, but that's how the early writers of scripture imaged the world. Does that make them bad? No, they were just doing the best they could with the information that was available to them at the time. Right? There's also stories in the Bible about, you know, the sun standing still because it was believed that the sun was revolving around the earth. And now we know it's actually not the way it works. Science is more reliable in terms of how. I think science can do a good job of getting at least the closest of anything else to telling us how we got here. But the Bible and our faith tradition are more equipped to speak to why and what now. Right? Scientists, science can bring us into the how. What the area of faith and what, what the area of the Bible, I think, is trying to get at is, okay, we, we're here. Why are we here and what do we do with it? Why do we exist? What does our brief time in this world mean and, and what do we do? These are the questions the Bible's trying to get to. Uh, another thing, uh, misconception, the Bible just isn't an answer book or a rule book or an instruction book. Um, the Bible does not contain basic instructions before leaving earth. That's not what the point of the Bible I love Bible. that quote. Um, the Bible isn't like, and I don't know if this is still how it is today, but um, when I was a, a kid in elementary school in the 80s, we would always, like the teacher would leave the room for something and we would go up and get the teacher's edition and flip to the back and, and get the answers. The Bible doesn't have, it isn't an answer book. It doesn't give us, often, actually, I think good readings of the Bible should leave us with more questions than they ever do answers. And so the Bible ultimately isn't trying to give us answers. It's trying to inspire us. It's trying to point us in a direction. It's trying to bring up some curiosity and some questions. But when we use the Bible just as sort of a rule book, it really just becomes um, legalistic, and it actually can hurt people. Because the point of the Bible, actually, it's not rules. But the point of the Bible, I think, is it's trying to call us into a more full, generous, and compassionate humanity. I just want to say that's another um, false accusation, a, a false assumption. It's it's not true. The, the Bible actually, the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah, which means the law. It's actually what governed ancient Israel um, and their existence as a country, as a nation. And so... At the same time, uh, the prophets, you know, they were brought on, if we read the rest of the Old Testament, they were brought on to bring Israel back to that covenant of laws, of faithfully walking with God in the truth. And so, while for us in the New Testament, it's not a theocracy as it was in ancient Israel, what it is, is still an instruction book. The Bible is full of instructions for how to live a godly life. The Bible is full of uh, not necessarily rules that are divorced from relationship, but yes, instruction for for what is good, what is right, uh, who God is, what he is like, and how we ought to live. And so his idea that the Bible um, 
is not a law book or isn't an answer book or isn't an instruction book, uh, isn't true clearly. Anyone who knows that um, has read the Bible would know otherwise that this is false. I'm sure atheists are looking on this and just laughing. I mean, it's just sad. This is just so wrong. So the Bible isn't a rule book, an answer book, an instruction book. The Bible also isn't the Word of God. Now, I know this is probably the most challenging point for those of us who have been told again and again and again and again the Bible is, is God's Word. The problem is the Bible does not claim to be that. The Bible does not claim to be that. The Bible doesn't claim to be that. Really? Are you sure about that? Again, I, I want to take you to, uh, I believe this is, uh, yeah, Second Peter chapter 3. Excuse me, Second uh, Timothy. I, uh, I don't claim that I'm inerrant, but possibly could claim the Bible is. So, Second Timothy, um, this is uh, chapter 3, verses 13. This is a really popular passage, and I just want to be careful to read this um, slowly so that we can address that claim again. The claim is, the Bible does not claim to be the Word of God. It, it just flat out doesn't. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. I also did a series through the pastoral epistles already that is on podcast and on YouTube if you want to check that out. But evil people and charlatans, from verse 13, will go from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived themselves. This is what exactly what I would tell you is going on in this video with this man. But nevertheless, verse 14, you, however, must continue in the things you have learned and are confident about. You know who taught you and how from infancy, infancy, excuse me, and of course this is from Paul to Timothy, um, it says this, you have known the holy writings which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So yes, the Bible's not a science book. It's more of a salvation textbook which is able to give you wisdom for salvation. That's the purpose of the Bible. While it does contain true scientific truths, while it does contain true historical truths, its ultimate main purpose is for salvation. It goes on to say this in verse 16, every scripture is inspired by God. There it is. He's telling you the Bible is saying one thing, and I'm telling you it says something totally different. Again, the debate is not over what is true. The debate is over what the Bible says. And you uh, listening, I believe, are all English-speaking um, people, and you can go look at your Bible and see what it claims for yourself because you're literate, and I thank God for that. Verse 16, every scripture, all scripture um, in the Greek, every scripture, not some scriptures or maybe scriptures, but every scripture, all scripture is inspired by God or God breathed and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the person dedicated to God or the man of God may be capable and equipped for every good work. So it is instruction book, and not only that, but it is inspired by God. And not only in some or in part, but every or all. That's the Bible's claim. Now, whether you believe that or not, that's something different. But as to what it says, it's very clear. Um, the Word of God, and the way it's often translated through, in the, especially in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Word of the Lord in the Bible is actually used in the writings of the prophets to describe the message and passion 
that the prophets were bringing into the world. And so often a prophetic call story, when, when they sort of get commissioned to carry out the work of a prophet, they have this moment where the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that like an Amazon drone flew up and dropped off a package, they opened it up and there's a scroll? So his claim here, again, another false accusation, is that when prophets uh, heard from God, I don't know, he clearly hopefully doesn't believe, you know, it's an Amazon drone. Um, but, you know, believe that maybe, again, he seems to have this continual belief that uh, books drop out of the sky, and that's not at all what Christians believe. Uh, he's going to say that this charismata, this passion, um, is what was ultimately the word of the Lord, quote unquote. Uh, but the reality is that the Bible teaches that God spoke to prophets through dreams and through visions, and that they were unmistakably from the Lord. And so when the Lord would speak to people through this way, through dreams, through visions, um, they would then receive this divine word and preach it to record it and pass it along to the people. What it wasn't at all is what he's claiming is that they were just really passionate and they went out and spoke on and claimed it was from God. That's not at all what the Hebrews uh, would have believed whatsoever. And they're supposed to read the, this Bible to people. No, the word of the Lord was more, it was more charismatic. It was more something, it was the fire trapped in the bones. And it was often calling an unjust people to do justice, um, to, to live compassionately and to care about those around them who were on the receiving end of all the injustices of society. It was a way of talking about the, the source inspiration, the source of the inspiration of the message they were bringing. So in that sense, the Bible does contain some of God's word in the sense that it contains these stories of prophets who believe they're inspired. So again, I'm not exactly sure the, the belief that he holds concerning inspiration. And I taught that earlier, but I think it may be a partial inspiration, but at times he seems to believe in uh, what's called natural inspiration, basically that none of it's inspired. But here, while he may not be consistent, here he's claiming partial inspiration, so long as it fits the justice narrative, so long as it fits the oppressor and oppressed narrative, then it's God's word. It's his claim here. To share these messages. Um, and in the New Testament, the point actually is not, uh, is that word is always seeking to become flesh. That's the beautiful image John gives us in John 1, where <laughs> the word became flesh. This is the most wild interpretation I've ever heard in my entire life. And I'm not that old, but uh, I'm in my late 20s. Um, his idea is that uh, John 1, John was speaking to the reality that the word is always trying to become flesh. Or in other words, that I don't know. I'm really not sure what he means. Um, I'll, I'll let him talk a little longer and then I'll, I'll tell you what it actually means. And moved into the neighborhood, right? This idea that the word is always trying to be embodied. And so the Bible just, just isn't God's word in the sense that it. Uh, something that God wrote and dropped down into the world. It's actually much more interesting than that. So basically what he's saying is, you know, the Bible's not inspired. It's more interesting than that. I love the way he words that. But anyways, um, John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. I'll pull it up on a screen in, in case you'd like to look at it for yourself. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. The Word was with God in the beginning. 
all things were created by him, and apart from him, not one thing was created. That has uh, been created, in him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. Again, this is clearly referencing Jesus, the person of Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, excuse me, from eternity past. This is a clear distinction from God. And, and John is clearly stating this. He's not stating that, you know, uh, the word, you know, um, is always trying to become flesh or what he's trying to say is maybe that people are always have been trying to figure out who God is or, um, you know, God's word has always been trying to be interpreted and become flesh in that sense. That's not at all. That's the most bizarre interpretation of John 1 I've ever heard. Um, but here it is, progressive Christianity. Hopefully it doesn't look too alluring to you. Um, I, I do think the Bible is far more interesting than inerrancy and infallibility. The idea that, for, if you know what those, don't know what those terms means, like the Bible has no errors and the Bible is right about everything it says. Um, reference Genesis 1 in the cosmology, right? Um, the idea that for the Bible to have any sort of authoritative role for Christians, that it has to be this perfect, perfect, pristine thing that has no errors really misses the point. Actually, part of what I find inspiring about the Bible is that it records different views. And it shows the communities that produce these texts were willing to wrestle, grow, and learn all of the time. I'll give you an example. If you go to some of the various books called wisdom literature, like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, or Job, um, what you'll find out is that they are trying to make sense of why things happen like they do. Why do bad things happen? Why do, why do we suffer? And here's the, here's the interesting part. They don't agree on the answer. And I think that's a beautiful thing. There is a space. There is space to grapple with big questions. And for me, so I think his uh, broad stroke of combining Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, these are three completely different books. And what he's trying to say is that they're trying to claim um, that they're exploring the same questions and coming to different answers. But the reality is they're exploring very different things and coming to very different things. But that all line up with Orthodox Christian faith. Uh, this is just a false accusation. Proverbs is a collection of, of true uh, teaching. Um, Ecclesiastes is, is wisdom literature in a different sense, and it's really a Solomon's exploration of the purpose of life, uh, whereas Job is a, really a recording of uh, Job's experience of, um, of his life and of, of the nature of who God is and what he is like um, and how he missed that. So, um, Notice the, the difference there, uh, really miss that with a broad stroke. That's not at all the purpose of those books. And the reason they kind of are different is because that's the purpose of them, not because um, what he wants you to believe, therefore Christian, uh, excuse me, progressive Christianity. So anyways. Hey, seeing our ancestors do that, in, in, essentially in some of their writings in real time. Uh, it reminds us that actually this is what an alive and vibrant faith does. It doesn't just sit back on yesterday's interpretations because what if we've been given better information? What if we know something else about how the world works? What if we learn a new thing about what it means to be human? And do we have to keep that over to the side and still hang on to this interpretation? No, no, no. We, we, can, we can transcend and include. We can move beyond. We can appreciate how this belief or practice or, or perspective got us here, but it's not going to get us into the future. And so we have to begin to... to move on and embrace what we've discovered to be truth. There is a space to do that in the Bible. And actually a vibrant and alive faith will do that.
So what can we say affirmatively about the Bible? Well, first, I would say this. Uh, we can say that the Bible is the product of two communities, um, the, the, early, or the Jewish community and the early Christian community. Those are the two communities that produced the Bible, and they produced it over time. So uh, unlike what I believed as a kid, and I really did just as, as like an you know, eight-year-old, this is, was my imagination about where the Bible came from, the Bible didn't miraculously fall out of the sky, leather-bound with gilded edges in the King James, because that's what Jesus read. That, uh, thank you, uh, Pastor Josh, for clearing that up for me. In case you didn't know, uh, the King James Bible is not uh, something that dropped out of the, the sky and gave us uh, you know, our doctrine of inspiration and the, the fullness of the text. So um, this, is, this is really troubling. So in this video, the straw man that he sets up is that um, according to his eight-year-old self, his eight-year-old version of interpretation, the King James Version Bible uh, dropped down into the sky, and that's how we got the Bible, the Word of God. Um, he doesn't offer like a, a scholarly other explanation for it. Uh, any thinking Christian, I'm just looking at my notes, uh, would wholeheartedly agree, you know, here. Um, what's being dispelled is a weird cult-like empty Christianity divorced from scholarship and historicity. Uh, dispelling your eight-year-old version of inerrancy is a straw man fallacy that thinking Orthodox Christians would never subscribe to in the first place. And what's troubling is that he doesn't bring up an alternative idea of inspiration, authority, and fallibility, um, but rather just continually references the Bible as dropping from the sky. And no Christian holds this. So it's really, to me, it's an embarrassing straw man. And, and I, I I would hope it, that he doesn't actually believe this. He doesn't make it clear. Um, I've I got to hope and trust that he doesn't believe that. But, but that's the the uh, view that he's condemning. That's the view he's casting down, and that's a view everyone would agree with. I don't believe that. I've never believed that. Um, so it's just sad. It, it really breaks my heart. Um, but but this is not at all what what thinking Christians have ever believed. Uh, with our name embossed on the front. Um, it was a product of two ancient communities who wrote down their stories and their poems and they wrote letters, never knowing at the time, for most of them, that their writings would ever be part of anything called sacred scripture. Again, this is a false accusation. Uh, there are many writings in the Old Testament that everyone knew. Um, and presumably the people who recorded them or the uh, secretaries or writers or inscribers who did write this down knew that they were writing scripture. Um, this is, um, this isn't true. There may be some argument for certain sections of scripture, but things like the Torah, Moses, of course, knew he was writing down the words of God, the prophets, they knew they were writing down the words of God, um, the history books, they knew they were writing down the books of God. Uh, this is just a false accusation. Um, it's not true. The Bible has a context. It is grounded in a time and place it's grounded in a people who were very much people of their time and place. They weren't living or writing in a vacuum. Their writing was inspired by their own context, by the context of what was happening in the larger world around them. I mean, if you go to the Hebrew Bible, what you're going to find is people writing under the context of threat. Be it the Assyrians or the Persians or the Babylonians, like any of those people, any of those empires were a constant threat to their life and well-being. And they're writing their stories and poems and letters under that threat. In the New Testament, they're writing it under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And at times during the New Testament, Roman emperors who would just be as happy to, 
use uh, Christians in the arena or um, as torches in their garden to light up their nighttime parties, right? You have these these early Christians who are writing and they're in a very, very different context than uh, you know, I can even begin to get my head around. The oldest parts of, this, of the Bible were written between 950 and 1000 BCE, roughly 3000 years ago. Uh, the final New Testament book to be written, which was probably Second Peter, was sometime in the 120s to 150. So both of these claims are, are factually false as well. Um, different people uh, would, would place Moses' life differently. Jerome suggests uh, 1592 B.C. Uh, James Usher would suggest uh, 1571 B.C.E. Uh, when he was born. So uh, most would date Moses' life as he lived uh, close to 120 years, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, around the 1500s B.C. So this is about 500 years off. Um, in his dating of the origin of the Old Testament. And his conclusion concerning Second um, Peter being one of the last books uh, written around 120s to 150s um, AD um, as well. Uh, most conservative scholars would date this around the 60s AD, and uh, some liberal scholars uh, even still would place it in the first century um, before the year 100 AD. So uh, this is a bit of a stretch. And there's books, um, I'd encourage you if you're curious about canonicity or, or um, uh, some of these type things. Uh, I did a introduction to the gospel of Mark. And I explained uh, just the book of Mark. And I'll deal with these, Lord willing, um, as I, I go through each book of the New Testament. But uh, Mark, for example, some would date all the way um, as early as 40s AD. And along with this, it's possible that there's Dead Sea Scroll evidence to back this up. So um, th this is a false claim. It's a false accusation. Um, so don't fall for these empty claims. Uh, it's so easy uh, for people to come up with a, a made-up truth. It's so easy to come up with um, a false belief. The hard work is that of really digging through archaeology, really digging through evidence really digging through to find the actual truth and to delve into both sides of uh, both perspectives of a view. So um, this isn't at all what I see. It's just, it's a really bad scholarship. And again, even from a liberal perspective, um, which I'm trying to uh, adopt to understand where he's coming from, even then um, his claims are quite empty. And along with that, he's not telling you what all the other scholars have said um, or would say. Um, he's trapped, as he says, he um, is trapped in his worldview, but he's not taking the time to get out of his worldview of progressive Christianity and explore the other claims. Uh, and I find that quite sad. Um, so the most recent documents in the Bible are, are a couple thousand years old, at least. So we, we can say that this, this thing we call the Bible was produced by these two communities. Um, it, it was essentially their experiences of God, their experiences of the world, and, and the way they were trying to interpret and make sense of that. Um, we can also say that the Bible is a library of texts, right? And, and just like any library, it had several different authors, many different authors. It wasn't just by... So we would say the Bible isn't univocal with one voice. It's multivocal. The Bible contains many voices, and it means we should expect to find tension in the Bible as different voices and different texts push and pull against one another. And this isn't something embarrassing to be covered up, but actually a gift. So, so one of the ways I was taught very early on when I was a youth is if you find an inconsistency in the Bible, it's actually not an inconsistency. It's just something with you 
<clears throat> and it's a temptation for you to not believe what the Bible says, right? So again, this is um, where his worldview, his upbringing, um, his seeming uh, church experience comes in. And, um, you know, first, I just want to say, I don't know exactly what inconsistencies he's referring to. It seems like Genesis has been a very troubling piece for him and maybe some of the violence we see in the Old Testament. Um, but but it begs the question for me of what kind of church did he grow up in that uh, he wasn't allowed to ask questions. Again, as I, I stated earlier um, in this video um, concerning this, this uh, response, I've never once shut down a question. I know there are many pastors just like me that I would never dream of shutting down a single question, uh, but would always invite it. So it's sad to see he grew up in like a cult-like uh, Christianity, which shuns exploration, shuns objective truth, shuns um, all kinds of things. And um, it's just it's just really sad that uh, I would not ever agree with that, that an inconsistency in Scripture is a temptation not to believe. I, I don't know of any inconsistencies of any uh, important degree in the Bible. But if I did, I wouldn't try to cover them up. Um, so anyways. Actually, there are. One of my favorite examples is the book of Ruth, which we talked about in Bible Stories for Grownups. But the book of Ruth was written at a time, it's set in the time of the judges, but it actually was written, uh, scholars believe, during the time of the Ezra-Nehemiah reform. So after they came back from exile, there's sort of this response of, we, we can have no foreigners among us if, you, if you're a, a Jew. So this idea that no foreigners um, could be around Israel, this is just another factually false accusation. Uh, this isn't true in any sense of the word. I just would like to point you to a few scripture passages um, in Deuteronomy that uh, make it quite clear that uh, his claims are, are false. Deuteronomy, uh, we'll start with uh, 14. Um, and, and this is uh, verse 28. Uh, just going to read two snippets, another passage in Deuteronomy I'll read after this. This is Deuteronomy 14, 28. At the end of every three years, you must bring all the tithe uh, of your produce in that very year, and you must store it up in your villages. Then the Levites, and it says in parentheses, because they have no allotment or inheritance with you, end of parentheses, the resident foreigners, okay, See this here, the resident foreigners. So there is clearly within the Old Testament law of God, a provision for those who are not among the Jewish people uh, to be a part of the kingdom, to be a part of um, the theocracy. So it says the resident foreigners, the orphans and the widows of your villages may come and eat their fill so that the Lord your God may bless you and all the work you do. I want to point you to another passage in, in Deuteronomy. Uh, this is in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 16. And this is uh, verse 13. Uh, this is concerning the festival of booze or the festival of temporary shelters. It says in verse 13, You must celebrate the festival of temporary shelters for seven days. At the time of the grain and grape harvest, you are to rejoice in your festival, you, your son, your daughter, your male and female slaves, the Levites, the resident foreigners, the orphans and the widows who are in your villages. You are to celebrate the festival seven days before the Lord your God in the place he chooses, for he will bless you in all productivity and in whatever you do, so you will indeed rejoice. Again, um, 
this is just two examples. There's a lot of provision in Old Testament law for proper treatment of people, proper treatment of slaves, as was revolutionary in their day. Uh, likewise, there was also nothing but provision for foreigners. And so this idea that that Ruth would never in any way, shape or form be allowed into uh, the Jewish people of God is just nonsensical. It's false. It's not true in any way. Um, there was nothing but provision in the Old Testament law to invite people of surrounding ethnicities and communities into the Jewish faith. And again, as if you're unfamiliar, I've stated this repeatedly in my New Testament teachings, but the way to become a Christian or in our covenant is you become a Christian, Jew or Gentile, and you don't have to adopt, um, say, the, the um, ideology or the Old Testament covenant of the Jews. But in the Old Testament, the way that you became a worshiper of Yahweh was by becoming a Jew. And you could do this uh, as a Gentile. We see in Jesus' ministry uh, with the temple, we see this in the Old Testament as well, that there's places even within the temple that are the outer courts that are for Gentiles to come in and become worshipers. That was the whole purpose behind the promises of Abraham. So these are false accusations. And quite frankly, as he's going to claim in the end of the video that he's been studying the Bible 20 years, he should know these things. Um, so for this to be the uh, logical inconsistency, it's not there. Jewish male and you're married to a foreign woman and have foreign children, you have to send them away. And the book of Ruth enters the, into the midst of this story and the hero who is the grandmother of the greatest king um, that Israel would ever know, David, that this woman, Ruth, was a Moabite. She was one of the very people that they were trying to get rid of, and she is the reason David came. Might I also add that when, when Ruth, um, if you're unfamiliar with the story, when, when she chooses to, um, after her husband dies, uh, reject uh, her people, she chooses to go with I believe her name's Naomi. I don't know if that's her, her second name. I can't remember. But she chooses and she says that she will go and worship their God with them. So um, again, keep that in mind. This is um, all within context and uh, within the legality provided to her in Old Testament law. Into the, world. the Bible is in conversation. It's many voices wrestling with what what do we do? How do we, how are we, how do we be faithful how do we make sense of suffering? How do we, and, and sometimes their answers uh, weren't satisfying to them. So of course they won't be for us, right? But that's okay. The, the point is to listen to the voices and then begin to add our own voices and experiences to the conversation. Again, the, the point of the faithful um, scriptures we've been given is to reinterpret it. That's what he's saying. And it's not something we need to cover up or be embarrassed about. The, the interesting ways the Bible displays that tension is something we actually, I think, should see as a gift. Um, I also think this, the Bible is a human response to the experience of God. The Bible doesn't have the full and final word about God, about what God is, who God is, what God's like, but instead invites us to keep going and to keep discovering. The experiences of our ancestors were not meant to keep us from our own. Actually, the experiences of our ancestors were meant to, of course, warn us at times. Um, they were meant to inspire us and they were meant, I think, to push us forward to have our own experiences of God, to have our own experiences of spirit and to learn and to grow. We, it's almost like so many of us were handed a, a, a faith that had no room for anything other than repeating the interpretations of the past. 
So again, the, the, that the Bible is the human word of who God is, I just would point you back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 through 21. Uh, the Bible clearly, clearly teaches something different. And likewise, as he said, some of us were handed a faith that had no room. I was never handed that faith. Um, I remember my grandfather, if I'd ask him a question about something in my early years as a Christian, I'd have a new book. <laughs> Here you go, figure it out. Um, so his experience of Christianity um, isn't necessarily um, the ideal. I would strongly discourage uh, anyone from what he's experienced growing up. And I, I really do feel for him. Um, but to think that, you know, faith has no room to grow. It's not a genuine faith. It seems like what he was encouraged was blind faith. And I've never or will never, by the grace of God, encourage someone for a blind faith. You cannot know the answer to every question. That's the human experience. But the fact that you are to pursue God with blindness um, or to pursue faith with blindness is foolish. Um, that's why there's so many prophecies in the Old Testament that are confirmed in the New Testament. Uh, that's why there's so much factual evidence that the Lord has allowed in the world for us to look at. Um, this is just a, a false claim. And in reality, faith is something so much more. And that gets to the next point. I think the Bible is living and dynamic. The Bible doesn't always represent the highest or best way, right? There are some things in the Bible that if you were to just stop and say, this is the best perspective, then we would be, and unfortunately, lots of people do this, but we would end up um, supporting all sorts of dehumanizing, unhelpful, catastrophic perspectives. Uh, and, and so this idea that the Bible says everything that needs to be said in the best and fullest way, it's just not true. But I think the Bible does show us the movement. I think the Bible does show us the direction of the ark, because even in some of the worst texts in the Bible, they actually show small, and maybe not all, but in many, they actually show a small incremental movement forward. Not what we would say, gosh, I wish they would have moved like massively forward, but for them in their time and place, an incremental move forward. I think we're experiencing that in our own time and place. There were some things that have been, I think, and many of us here at Grace Point think were misinterpreted and misunderstood, and we have been on this journey of learning and growing in concert with the divine and one another. And we've come up with some alternative perspectives and that's, that's not unfaithful. That I think is faithfulness. Again. So he's going to try and reinterpret many things here. He's reinterpreting uh, what is faithfulness, faithful worship of Yahweh. And so his claim here is that faithfulness is reinterpreting the truths we've been given. Uh, the book of Jude tells us quite quite different um, a quite different narrative. Uh, just this passage popped in mind as I was hearing him say that. Um, it says in verse three of uh, the little letter at the end of your Bible in Jude. Jude says, uh, which would have been the brother of Jesus, dear friends. Although I have been eager to write to you about our common salvation, I now feel compelled instead to write to encourage you to contend or to fight earnestly for the faith. And get this, that was once for all entrusted to the saints. So this unified faith has been given for one time for all the saints. In other words, this is an unchanging truth. This is an, an unchanging faith with the, the same things that, as Malachi says, um, that, that God says he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, and so Jude affirms with the New Testament, he tells us that 
Uh, he wants them to fight, the Christians to fight for their faith. That was once for all and trust of the saints. So again, the Bible claims that, that this faith is unchanging. The Bible claims that it's been given to us once and for all of us for all of this epoch of human history. So keep that in mind. It says in verse four, for certain men have secretly slipped in among you, men who long ago were marked out for the condemnation I'm about to describe, ungodly men who have turned the grace of our God into a license for evil and who deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, how applicable is this passage for us today? I don't think that's not valuing the Bible. I think it's actually really valuing it and taking it seriously is this role and responsibility we have to keep the conversation going. Our ancestors did their part to move it forward, and we are invited to do ours. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, when the, the eye for an eye was written and included in the Hebrew Scriptures, it was a dramatic leap forward. That you couldn't just wantonly harm someone. If somebody gouges out your eye, you can't, you can't then chop off their eye. You can only do eye for an eye. If they knock out your tooth, you can't cut off their hand. You can only knock out their tooth. It was essentially meant to limit retaliation and violence. And yet, as we've seen in human history, um, we actually at times will take something that was meant to be a positive and it's sort of, we see how, how far can we lower the bar? So that in Jesus' day, Jesus comes along and says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye. But I tell you, love your enemies. Right? I mean, this is, Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah, this was a massive step forward, but we're not finished. And I would say that that was a massive leap forward, but we're not finished. We're still going. What What was in some ways a leap forward can end up justifying a lot of terrible things if we don't continue the forward movement in our understanding and in our approach. So I, I want to leave with this. I, I, here are a few things I think that for progressive Christians and for, for me, here's what the Bible has been. The Bible connects us to the past. I have increased, as I get older, one of my favorite images of the Bible um, it, it is in one of my least favorite books of the Bible, um, the book of Hebrews, where... Um, I think it's interesting that this uh, Bible that he loathes um, in many places, although he claims not to, um, for him connects him to the past when in the the sense of what he's saying of what progressive Christianity is, is it's this arc of justice moving forward. And in claiming this, he's saying we're progressing, we're getting better. Um, but but I like to look back at the grossness of the past. You know, something I, I see commonly with atheists, uh, also here with progressive Christianity, is the supreme arrogance of uh, 21st century Americans. We We have this arrogance that we think we know better than anyone from the past. We think clearer than anyone from the past. We're more uh, evolved and scientific and all of these things more than anyone in the past. And if you read some of the works um, that were done, even by non-Christian authors like Plato or Aristotle, if you read uh, even some of the brilliant Christian thinkers, um, some of the brilliant Christian scientists, if you read some of you know the ancient writers um, in various ways, uh, what I find what, when I've studied them is is not ignorance or stupidity or, or dudes walking around with clubs in their hands. I, I find thinking individuals. So this idea that we are elevated above, and this isn't just specific to this guy. This is such a common thing I see uh, all across the board, across the map, is just an arrogance. We think we're smarter than any other human um, time period in history. We think 
Uh, we know more than everyone. Um, we think that uh, we're, we're so much higher and above. And uh, I just don't think that's the case. I don't, I don't find that factually in history. Um, now, while we have stood on the shoulders of the past, and that's quite true, and we stand on the discoveries of the past, that's quite true. Um, I don't think it warrants this place that we find ourselves in arrogance and pride. They talk about the cloud of witnesses, that we are essentially running our race before a great cloud of witnesses. And those cloud of witnesses are uh, the saints and dear ones who have already completed their race here in the world. And there's something profound for me to think about that all the ways that so many people who have gone before me would have disagreed with my theology, and yet they're still cheering me on. I think the Bible connects us to that past. It connects us not just to the people in the text, but all the people that we have known and loved and valued over the years who taught us the Bible, even if they taught us in ways that we, we no longer hold on to. Um, they were in, in that moment influential. And I think there's this beauty of being connected to the past to realize that we aren't, we aren't the first. We aren't breaking terribly new ground in so many ways, that we're still part of this thing that stretches back thousands of years that people have lived for and died for, that people have been... I would uh, sharply disagree. I don't think the cloud of witnesses is looking on, on him or his life or his church with any pleasure at all. And I most definitely don't think that uh, they are connected in any way, shape, or form. Inspired by, and yes, that some people have done some really terrible things with. Um, and yet we even need to remember that so that we remember where this thing could go if we don't continue moving forward. So it connects us to the past. It, I think it challenges us and grounds us in the present. Um, but the Bible still challenges us. Um, it, so, some of these texts, which we, we want to say, gosh, everything in the Bible is so dated. Actually, some of these texts in the Bible are still challenging today. I mean, this whole idea in the Hebrew Bible of Jubilee, which was, which was meant to make sure that this whole gap between the rich and the poor didn't keep going and going and that people would lose their ability to, to farm their family land because of debt and that would just keep going for generations. Like every 50 years, no, no, every, every 50th year, we're going to have a jubilee. We're going to start the thing over from scratch. I mean, that was, that's a progressive idea and one that scholars say actually was, has never been implemented in the world. But there are things in the Bible, even in the oldest parts of the Bible, there are things that still challenge us things we would resist and push back against, not because they're barbaric, but because they ask too much of us, more than we're willing to give. And so I think the Bible is a way of engaging with the past, being, being connected to the past, but also being challenged and grounded in the present. And then I think the Bible can help point the way to the future for us, in that it shows us the ark. It shows us that there's still more work to be done, that there are still there's still more equity to be created. There's still more spaces at the table that need to be made. There's so much work to be done. And while the Bible may not spell out the work for us because it can't, because the, it was, it was, you know, the canon, the last text was written 2000 years ago, but at least it can give us a little bit of the direction. And at least it can begin to show us a little bit of the ethic through which we seek to engage the world. I mean, ultimately, if, if we take the Bible seriously, we take Jesus seriously, that, the, and, and Paul seriously, the greatest possible uh, gift we can give the world is love. And if we allow love to guide us in our engagement with the Bible and in our interpretation of the Bible, then I think scriptures can actually be helpful to us as we begin to forge a new path um, into the world to do all the good we can in all the ways we can and to leave the world better than we found it. That's why I love the Bible. That's why uh, after 20 plus years of doing this, giving sermons, studying the Bible, 
I'm still just as excited about it as I was day one. Because I believe the Bible actually can, we, we, we can be in tension with it, we can be in critique of it, and we can at the same time embrace it knowing that this, is, this, this represents our cloud of witnesses. And I, I really hope and I like to think they're cheering us on as we move forward and do our own work in our own day to leave the world better than we found so i don't know uh you know if he likes it because it's illogical or inconsistent i'm really not sure but um yeah what a sad thing to see um just some final thoughts on this um i think that when we walk away from the essential truths of christianity this would include uh, the trinity this would include uh, the authority and inspiration of the Bible to some sense. Uh, this would include um, salvation by grace through faith. Uh, this would include um, maybe some other things I'm not thinking of. Um, but anyways, uh, the deity of Christ. Um, forgive me, my uh, uh, theologians out there. But uh, there's certain things. What I'm trying to say is there's certain things when we, we step away from we really depart from Christianity. And we can call it a different type of Christianity. But the reality is that it's not Christianity at all. Uh, Christianity, to be a Christian, is to be a little Christ. To be a follower of Christ means, well, guess what? A follower of Christ. And so that means uh, agreeing with the teachings of Christ. That means following in Christ and, and life and uh, ethic. And that means uh, trying to please Christ as he is now, sitting at the right hand of the Father presently. And for someone who doesn't walk that out and live that, um, or someone who doesn't believe that, they can't rightly be called Christian. Uh, it's a mislabeled person. It's a false convert or a deceived convert or some other weird, strange being. Um, so anyways, that's my thoughts. Um, just thought I'd share that with you. I hope this has been helpful. Again, don't forget, if you got any questions, uh, shoot me a question at askgrantmooney.com at gmail.com, all lowercase, uh, no spaces. Um, you can send me a question there. You can leave a comment on YouTube. I try to get to those. Um, I'd love to interact with you. I pray this has been a blessing. And I'd love to hear from you. What does the Bible mean to you? How do you view the Bible? Uh, I think that's such an important question to ask. I, I think it's important that you figure out answers to these questions for your own life. Because if you don't, uh, people really have some other answers they'd like to be I'm busy giving you.